This morning's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 23. And you can find that in your bulletin or in the Pew Bible on page 822. Hear God's people, the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of the Lord will stand Let's pray together. Father, we sang it together just a few minutes ago, and it just seems so appropriate to, uh, to remember it now. His promised mercy is my fort, my comfort, and my sweet support. Amen. It is true, Father. Now we, we pray that, that your promised mercy would come and we would feel the power of it and the strength of it and the protective care of it. We pray for the ministry of your spirit to make your mercy in Jesus Christ known to us that Jesus is your mercy to us, the fulfillment and highest expression and power of your mercy for us in this room, for everyone here. And we pray, Lord, that, that this would be a season in which worship continues. Not that we've put worship aside and, and just begun some kind of theological exploration. No, Father, what we want to define this time on both sides of this pulpit is adoration. Adoration. And exaltation. And so particularly, I want to pray 
that today would be uh, the day in which you reveal, as Jesus' Father in heaven, that you reveal uh, to many here who have not yet known the Lord Jesus that he is indeed the Christ and the Son of the living God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've reached the most controversial part of... <laughs> of this passage this morning, and uh, what I want to do with you together this morning is uh, think about, uh, together, about the identity of the rock in uh, Jesus' promise in uh, verse 18, the rock on which Jesus declares that he will build his church. Verse 18, listen to the Lord Jesus saying to Peter and uh, to the rest of the disciples, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That declaration raises a very vital question for each of us. Who or what is the rock on which uh, Jesus promises to build his church? Now, these, this matters because... Let's just think about how builders work for a little bit. I know it's laughable that I would be saying, who barely knows the business end of a hammer, okay? But I do, I have watched a lot of builders. And uh, it is true that where a builder decides to build, the method that he uses for building, and the materials that he uses for building, uh, tell us something about him, right? They tell us about his plan, they tell us about his a purpose. They tell us about his pleasure. They tell us about his design. And they tell us about his desire. In many ways, a building is a, like a story of the builder. It tells us a lot about the builder. And though the church that Jesus is describing and promising to build in verse 18 is not a building, but a people, nonetheless, he identifies himself as a builder. And we come to know the builder through what he builds. And the church of Jesus Christ is a canvas on which Jesus paints his self-portrait. So when he says, and the same is true of the rock, when he says, on this rock I will build my church, we need to know who or what or who and what, preview, preview, that rock is. Because understanding the rock will be a window into our understanding of the builder. And so that's really, let me frame the question this way. Is the rock on which Jesus promises to build his church a... Peter's confession, or B, Peter the man. And if you've been at Emmanuel longer than 12 seconds, you know that the answer to that question is yes. It's yes. So I want to show you that this morning under three headings. We're going to look at how the rock is the confession, Secondly, how the rock is the man. And then we're going to look at the genius. We'll conclude by looking at the genius of Jesus' design 
and there are two particular pastoral reflections I want to look at. But before we dive into the headings, I need to set kind of the, the landscape a little bit, survey the landscape, because, because this question of the rock's identity, many of you I know come out of a Roman Catholic background, and uh, many of you come out of a, just a strictly Protestant background, and so you know, and some of you maybe are not church at all, so you're blissfully ignorant of how much attention and passion has been spent across the centuries on identifying uh, this rock. And so before we dive into the headings, let me ask you to imagine a spectrum, okay? And at one extreme end of the spectrum is the traditional Roman Catholic understanding of the identity of the rock. And the traditional Roman Catholic understanding of the identity of the rock is that Jesus is saying that Peter the man is the rock. At the other end of that spectrum, the other extreme end of the spectrum, is the traditional Protestant understanding of the rock. And that says, no, the rock is not Peter the man. The rock is Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock on which Jesus promises to build his church. So let's think about those two positions for a minute and what they represent. It's very interesting. Because the Roman Catholic position, what it does is essentially reads uh, what Jesus says in verse 18, and it hyper-personalizes the reference to Peter the man. And what it does, the traditional Roman Catholic understanding, is it, it essentially separates Peter from the rest of the disciples and the rest of the church in both his office and his ministry. Now, we're prone as Protestants to assume that that's the only mistake being made here, but I want to uh, disabuse you of that misconception because I believe that the Protestant uh, position also uh, does something at the extreme that is unhelpful to us because what the Protestant position does is it... If the Roman Catholic position hyper or over-personalizes the reference to the rock, the traditional Protestant position on this under-personalizes it, depersonalizes it, and separates Peter from his, separates the man from his confession. And I think that both of these positions, what I'm going to try to show you this morning, and I know this sounds like it's going to be a theological lecture. It's not going to be once I get done with this survey. Trust me, Okay. But I think what happens is that both of these uh, fail to do justice to the text. And both of them stray from the most natural uh, reading of the text and its understanding of the text. They're not sensitive. Both of them uh, lose track of the context of what Jesus says in verse 18. Because I believe when we look at it in context, what we're going to see is that Jesus uh, neither makes Peter a pope nor does Jesus reduce Peter and use him as a prop. And so I think what's going to happen this morning, what I trust uh, the Lord for, is to, is to basically dislocate uh, us when we're at the extremes and to graciously relocate us according to the gospel this morning. And I believe that as uh, the Lord will do that, I think what's going to come into view for us again is the beauty of the gospel. It's going to come into view with a much sharper focus because as the church is the king's canvas, so the rock is also our king's canvas and tells the story of Jesus to us. So 
Let's, with that intro, that's a longer introduction than normal. Let's, let's look first at, and thank you for your indulgence. Uh, let's look first at how the rock is the confession. Because Peter's confession is the church's confession. And to understand the identity of the rock, I think, um, as, as not being at least including Peter's confession, I think just loses track totally of the context. Because from verse 13 on, what has been happening? Jesus has been putting the issue on the table for his disciples. What issue? The issue of his identity. So in verse 13, he asks the disciples, he says, um, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. In other words, he is pushing for an answer. And the disciples respond in verse 14. See, Jesus is setting the, this, the, the agenda for this discussion. Verse 14 uh, the disciples, as a group, review the various theories of the people. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he comes back to them, and he doesn't ask about the people. He asks the disciples as a group in verse 15. But who do you, and that's you plural, who do you guys say that I am? So he's not letting them be spectators of other people's opinions. He's pushing the question of his identity upon them. And then Peter answers, uh, as uh, the leader of the disciples, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus in verse 17, so that, that decisive confession has come forth in verse 16. Jesus still remains on the issue of that confession of his identity in verse 17 when he explains where that confession came from. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So everything up to that point has all been about the confession. So then he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It seems to me that the natural reading of that context requires us to see the rock at least in part as being Peter's confession. And that makes sense to me also when you think about the church. Because isn't this the confession that defines the church? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What is it that sets not just us as a local congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ, but the Church of Jesus Christ across the ages? What is it that defines the Church of Jesus Christ? It is this confession a confession that is both doctrinal and relational at the same time. A confession that is both about Jesus Christ, who he is, what are his offices. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He's the promised and long-expected deliverer. He's the king. He's the heir of David. He's the Messiah. It's a confession that is doctrinal. It's a confession that's relational. It's a, it's a confession that's about Jesus. And what I love so much about it is it's a confession to Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a confession of his royalty. Right? I mean, it's a, 
This is the confession that defines the church, that acknowledges Jesus as king, in which, by which his people gladly celebrate that Jesus Christ is Lord and king of all. His royalty is what defines the church, and our loyalty to him as king is what defines the church across the ages. That is what Peter is saying. This is what defines the church of Jesus Christ fundamentally. This is the reality, the confessional reality that defines the church of Jesus Christ across the ages, about Jesus to Jesus. That's what we're about. The gravity of the church, this confession reminds us, is not a cause, but a king. Now, I worry about a lot of things as a pastor, okay? But you know one of the things I worry about the most as a pastor is that, is that any of you would have a greater intimacy with your cause than with your king. See, this, this is the confession that defines the church, not the causes that the church sometimes pursues. Abortion. These are good causes, right? Abortion, human trafficking. These are good things. But that's not what defines the church. Uh, any kind of social agenda, whether, whether it's the free market or democracy or anything like that, that's not what defines the church. That's not what Jesus builds his church on. What he builds his church on, friends, is the confession about him and his work and also to him as Lord. We acknowledge him as king. He is Lord of all. We gladly submit to him as our king. We have him as our king. We are his people. We celebrate that he has taken us to himself. That's what defines the church of Jesus Christ. I believe not only from context but also from history that if we if we read the rock in any other way than including Peter's confession, we've totally missed the boat. And remember, this confession is a big deal. It's the story of sovereign grace, as we looked at two weeks ago. Verse 17. It's just an amazing statement. I mean, this is one of those verses that it's easy to skip over. But, boy, don't skip over this one. Because there's a whole world underneath the tip here. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We must never, ever forget, friends, what Jesus tells Peter about this confession, that his confession of Jesus's identity, as well as our own, is really his and our participation in the Father's own confession of Jesus' identity. That confession that Jesus celebrates in verse 17 is not about what Peter or any of us have achieved, but it's a, it tells a story of a gift that we've received. When we confess uh, this morning in worship, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You know what we're doing? We are echoing to Jesus what, the, what he heard the father say over him at his baptism. This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the father's confession of the son. 
that we're participating in. That is staggering. And I think that's why it's not, uh, that's why it's not overstatement or hyperbole for, for Jesus to say uh, that Peter's confession is a rock, even though he knows full well that just in the space of a few verses, Peter's going to get a little wobbly. Because Peter knows, I mean, Jesus knows that the rock on which he builds his church is undergirded by something far stronger and far deeper than human fidelity. Far deeper and far stronger than human strength. Far deeper and far stronger than human achievement. It is the will of his Father. Friends, what Jesus is declaring to us about this confession is that it has absolutely nothing to do with human merit, with human ability, with human achievements. And, that, and because that is true about the rock of Peter's confession, that is also necessarily true about the church on which Jesus build, uh, that Jesus builds on that rock. What Jesus is telling us in verse 17 is, let me make sure that from the very beginning you understand that the story of the church that I am building, that the canvas that I am painting on, that this church that I will build will have nothing to do with human merit, nothing to do with human ability, nothing to do with human achievement. It will not be a monument to the achievement of men. It will be a monument to the fidelity and achievement of God alone. It's a great confession. It's a deep confession. It is an inconquerable a confession because the story of Peter's confession in every way mirrors the story of the church. If you want to understand what the church is about clearly, we have got to understand this rock. Yes, it's Peter's confession, but not, it's the whole story of Peter's confession. It's the confession being made, but then it's the root of the Father's sovereign grace that gives rise to that confession and the work of Christ that enables, that fulfills that confession in his earthly ministry. Friends, this is a huge confession. This is a strong confession. The church that Jesus is building on that rock will have no need of human merit. No need of human achievement. No need of human ability. Friends, even if we had it to give him, he wouldn't need it. Right? He wouldn't need it. That cross is the same story because ultimately the crucifixion, the story of Peter's confession is the story of Jesus' crucifixion. It's the same story. The cross reminds us Jesus' willingness to purchase the church with his own blood. That's how the church has come into being. Jesus himself has purchased the church with his own blood, the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20. Think about what that means. That the church has nothing to do with your merit, with my merit, 
with the apostles' merit, with your achievements, or my achievements, or the apostles' achievements, and nothing to do with our abilities. In fact, the cross reminds us that we don't have any merit. It's about our inability, and it's about the bad that we've achieved. And this awesome gift of sovereign grace that God has given us, not in response to things that we have done to, as a reward, but purely and solely as his gift. The story of Peter's confession is the story of the church. And the church that Jesus Christ builds is the monument of his merit and his ability and his achievement alone. The church will not be brought about because of what Peter has done or what any of us have achieved, but only because of what we have received in the work of Christ and in the gift of the Father drawing us to Christ and uniting us to him. Yes, the rock is Peter's confession, and that confession tells the story of the amazing grace of God. But the the rock is also the man, Peter. Now, I know you just got nervous. You remember at the beginning of the sermon when I was uh, stepping out of my comfort zone and I was using an illustration from building, okay, I'm going to do it again because I think I'm right on this one, okay, that, do you remember at the beginning of the sermon I said uh, the materials a builder uses, the site he picks for his building, and the method he uses to build his building all tell us really important things about the builder. And the, and the building itself that he ultimately finishes is, is a story about the builder. And so, so when, when we see that, that Jesus is selecting this rock, uh, we, should, we, should, we should realize that in thinking about the identity of the rock, the identity of the rock is going to tell us about Jesus' plan his design is going to tell us about what Jesus takes delight in and what he finds pleasure in. And so when we come to verse 18, uh, I believe that, that it's unmistakable that at another level, it's equally unmistakable that Peter is being declared as a man uh, the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church. It's a very clear uh, in the, in the Greek, because Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, you could spend all day parsing the difference between whether Petra is a boulder and Petros is, uh, is a, forma- a larger formation of rock. I don't think we need to do that. I think that's way too subtle. I think it's very clear that what Jesus has just done is he said, and I tell you, you are rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church. I think it strains every natural reading of this text to depersonalize that reference and to read it as Jesus not referring to Peter the man. So now I know you're nervous. 
But I believe very strongly that to the extent that our Protestant instincts lead us to read the man Peter out of the rock, to depersonalize the confession, I think that to the extent our instincts as Protestants or our background as Protestants lead us to do that, I think they do us a great disservice. And I think they end up obscuring uh, the beauty and the power of the gospel. So in order to show that to you, I want to think with you about two aspects of Peter the man. First, his uniqueness, and then his weakness. So let's think first about Peter's uniqueness. And the only way to deny the uniqueness of Peter is to deny the witness of Scripture. He is unique. He is unique. The only way to avoid it is to not read your Bible. Okay, this is just unmistakable. Just think about some of the ways that Peter is unique and and given a prominence as a disciple and as an apostle. First, if you look at all the lists of the disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Simon Peter is always first. Always. Within the twelve, from within the twelve, there's the group of the three, the inmost circle of the disciples is Peter, James, and John. And when that group of three is mentioned, Peter is always mentioned first. That shows up of great, in great, in, as a matter of great significance uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 17, the transfiguration of Jesus. It's only Peter, James, and John who get to go. It also shows up again in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 26. It's Peter, James, and John. And when the disciples, all three of them, fall asleep while Jesus is praying, only one of them is named by Jesus as a matter of rebuke, and it's Peter. Because he's the leader. And then when you get into the book of Acts, you see the prominence that Peter has. He has great prominence in the book of Acts. He's the one who leads the disciples in the selection of Judas's replacement in chapter 1. He's the one who interprets the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and preaches on Pentecost. He's the focus of the early chapters, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. You see him all over the place. He's the one who confronts Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. In chapter 8, it's Peter and John who are summoned to go to Samaria to verify that indeed the Samaritans have come to faith. In chapter 10, it is Peter who is called to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel to this uh, Gentile centurion and all of his household. And, And it is Peter who reports back to the apostles in Jerusalem about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. I call that Gentecost. Okay? It's Peter. And then even in Acts 15, the council of Jerusalem, even though Peter is not the leader The apostle James is the leader. Jesus' brother is the leader in Jerusalem. Still, he has a prominent role. But guys, don't confuse Peter's historical prominence for his preeminence. Those are not the same things. Don't confuse those. When Jesus dubs Simon Peter, 
and then immediately declares that on this Petra, I will build my church. I don't think there's any denying that Jesus says, Peter, on you as a man, I'm going to build my church. And the rest of the New Testament shows us that that's what happened. Okay? But the role that Peter has in the New Testament, and this is especially true in the book of Acts, while it may be the role of a pioneer, it is not the role, not the same thing as the role of a superior. Okay? You don't hear about Peter after Acts 13. Who do you hear about? Paul. So that's really important to see that. And even the keys of the kingdom that we see Jesus giving to, uh, to Peter here, and he says, when he, when he says, and I give you the keys of the kingdom, it's you singular. And whatever you singular bind on uh, earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, even there, friends, uh, if you go to chapter 18, I don't want you to do it right now, chapter 18, verse 18, Jesus, Jesus assumes that that power, that same power to bind and loose, is a power that's shared among all the apostles, all the disciples, not just Peter, and through them to the church, which is built on their foundation. Okay? So Peter is unique, but in his prominence, not his preeminence. So now let's turn to Peter's weakness, which is why you all came anyway. This is the other strand, right, of Scripture's portrait of Peter besides his historical prominence. And and it's the prominence of his weakness. And it is amazing when you think about it. We have more. The Holy Spirit has preserved. Think about this. This really struck me this week when when I was getting ready. That the Holy Spirit has preserved... Uh, more information for us in the New Testament about the failings and weakness of Peter than any of the other apostles, even the Apostle Paul. Isn't that interesting? And yet this is the rock on which Jesus says he's going to build his church. I think that linkage between the, uh, the reams of scriptural evidence about Peter's weakness and Jesus designating that one the rock, I think that's really important for us to keep in mind. That tells us a lot about Jesus. It tells us about much more than Peter. It tells us about Jesus. It tells us about his design. It tells us about the church that he's building. It tells us about his gospel. Think uh, with me just for a minute about just some of the weaknesses and failings of Peter that are recorded in the New Testament. How about just a few verses later in this chapter when after Jesus has declared that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and, and be killed and raised on the third day that Peter immediately steps into the void and says, never, may it never happen to you. And Jesus rebukes him because he completely has misunderstood Jesus' mission and the necessity of the cross. So there's that. Then the very next chapter, the transfiguration. Remember, Jesus is transfigured before them, and there's, uh, there's Moses and Elijah also in the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus, unlike Moses and Elijah, Jesus is, is brighter, as it were. And yet Peter says, I've got a great idea. Let me... Uh, what if we build three tabernacles, one for each of you, as though implying that, that Jesus was equal with Moses and Elijah? Mm-mm. 
Number three, how about in Gethsemane? He falls asleep during the hour of Jesus' anguish. And then there are his three denials. And even after declaring, though they all fall away, because of you, I will never fall away. And even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter denies him three times, just as Jesus had predicted. That's the rock on which Jesus builds his church, my friends. And you think, okay, well, Mike, all that's before Pentecost, right? After Acts 2, Peter's good to go, right? None of that happens to him anymore. Well, try Galatians 2. Even post-Pentecost, in the church in Antioch, uh, Peter is up there, and he's rubbing elbows with the Gentile believers who are converted, and then and, and sharing table fellowship with them in the freedom of the gospel. He's learned the, he learned from his vision in Acts chapter 10, and now he's walking in the freedom for which Christ has set him free. And then the delegation comes from Jerusalem, the party of the circumcision, and Peter immediately withdraws uh, from table fellowship with the Gentiles, and Paul reads him the riot act in public. That's post-Pentecost. And Scripture records all that for us. In fact, there are so many weaknesses in Peter that we might be tempted to ask the question, okay, does Jesus know what he's doing when he designates Peter as the rock? What kind of a master builder is he? Well, the way you answer that question all depends on knowing the kind of building that Jesus is building. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. See, if you think that the church is a temple to the merit of men and the achievement of men and the ability of men, if you think that the church is the morally pure and the people who get it right and everyone out there, those are the weak, morally compromised people, then you'll think that Jesus is making a mistake. But what if that was never Jesus' design for the church to begin with? What if you're wrong about that assumption? What if the biggest sinners are in the church not outside the church. What if the, most, what if the most morally weak people are in the church and not, outs- and not outside the church? Because, you know, that's the truth, both of those things. Well, then what Jesus is doing makes perfect sense, right? Because then the church we realize is telling a different... Maybe Then we realize Jesus is telling a radically different story with his church. He's painting a radically different kind of self-portrait than we might think on the canvas of the church. And we get a hint of that in Luke 22. Uh, look with me at verses 31 and 32. This is um, in the last night before uh, Jesus is crucified, and he... He has this aside to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, there's a window into something that we don't have any record of in the Bible 
right, other than Jesus saying it. But just think about what that describes. But Jesus says to him, imagine being Simon and having Jesus say that to you, and you suddenly realize that Satan has been after you and wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to crush you. You're the rock, and he wants to sift you like wheat. Spiritual peril. Real spiritual peril. And notice how Jesus answers, answers him. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, when Jesus prays for you, his prayers are answered. And notice what comes next. Jesus assumes the success and effectiveness and prevailing of his prayers. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Oh my goodness. Do you see the kind of church that Jesus is building from that? What do you mean, when you have turned? What do you mean, strengthen your brothers? What do you mean, Jesus? It should read exactly the opposite. When you have turned, you're going to be disqualified from spiritual leadership, Peter. So be, when you come back, put yourself under the authority of your brothers to be strengthened by them. Jesus says exactly the opposite. When you uh, return, you're the strong one. (laughs) What? When you return, after denying me three times, guess what, Peter? Your faith will not have failed. What an odd definition of failing faith Jesus has. See, Jesus, what did Satan want to do? He wanted to sift Peter like wheat. And Jesus says, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So, Peter, your faith is not going to fail, but you're going to deny me three times. Let's just rewind that. Could you say that one more time? You're going to, I'm going to deny you three times, Jesus, and yet you're not going to regard that as the failure of my faith. How could that be? And the answer is simple. Jesus' definition of a f- faith that fails is a faith that falls and gives up. Whereas a faith that does not fail is a faith that fails, or is a faith that falls and gets up by faith. His promised mercy is my fort, not my resolve to never make that mistake again. What is your comfort when you fail, friends? Is it your vision of being able to rewrite your disobedience with your own obedience? Or is your support, your sweet support, the promised mercy of Jesus Christ. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers. How could Peter be that guy? It's just absolutely amazing. You see what that means? What that means is that, is that the church, that tells us so much about the church, that this rock, 
This rock on which Jesus builds his church, yes, it's undergirded by the invincible sovereign grace of God, but that on, resting on that sovereign grace of God is, a, is human weakness. Not, not, the church is not ultimately the story of human fidelity, but divine fidelity, human weakness. And so how is it that this uh, compromised, uh, threefold denying Peter could be the rock on which Jesus builds his church? How could he possibly put strength into his brothers? Well, who is it that Jesus assembles in his church? If he's assembling the the spiritual avengers and the spiritual superheroes, then of course a man who has been that weak could not pour strength into him. But what if Jesus is gathering not the noble, not the high-minded, not the wise, but the fools? What if he's gathering not the strong and not the successful, but the weak? What if he's gathering not those who are healthy, but those who are sick, who need a physician? What if he's gathering bruised reeds and dimly burning wicks? Then a man who has been in the depths of his own failure and his own weakness and who has been restored only by the mercy of God and in Jesus Christ, that man has a story to tell that will give hope and strength to other people. That is the story of the church. Because the church that Jesus is building is about restoration. That that is why Peter and people like him are not just building materials that Jesus Christ, the builder of the church, tolerates and accepts, but those are his choice building materials. Because there's only room for one story in the church. The church is a single story building. And what I mean by that is not height. I mean the story that the building tells. There's only room for one story in the church that Jesus is building. And the fact that Peter is the rock tells that story. And the story is this. Jesus's glory and no one else's. The church that he's building is all about restoration. That's the song that his church is designed to sing. Friends, where a builder decides to build tells you something about the builder and Jesus builds his church on the ruins of human sin. He builds his church on the rocks of human failure. He builds his church on the rock of human weakness, on the rock of human infidelity, on the rock of human foolishness. He builds his church on the rock of human rebellion. What a king! What a builder! He enters the desolation, everything that sin has wrought, not just in our lives individually, but also in the world. And he builds his church there. And he displays through human weakness and the lack of human merit and the lack of human achievement, his merit, his strength, his achievements. It's a single story building that canvas that I told you the church was at the beginning of the sermon, is, uh, is set apart and spread out for Jesus to tell and to paint 
his self-portrait. Think about David. I was thinking about David this morning as I was getting ready. Think about Psalm 51. I mean, this is not new here, right? I mean, when you read through the Bible, I don't care what pace you do it, you just ought to do it because it will edify you so much because you'll, you'll hear the gospel everywhere. So this morning I was thinking about Peter and all of a sudden, boom, Psalm 51 comes into my mind. You know Psalm 51 when David wrote Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. And then in verse 12 and 13, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know what comes next? Then I... Oh, yeah, the serial adulterer, the murderer, the liar. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Because David knows he's a transgressor, and he's received the mercy of God. And so who better equipped to teach others about the mercy of God who also need the mercy of God than one who's received the mercy of God. So the whole church is a structure of mercy. And all the costs of that restoration, every single, every single aspect of the cost of restoration that the church is about, Jesus bears those costs willingly. He absorbs those costs willingly. And freely for his bride. He purchases the church with his own blood. He is willing, friends. This is what is so amazing about this. He uses human weakness. He builds his church on human failure. Because he doesn't need our strength. And he doesn't need our success and our triumph to build his church. Because that's not the story. You see, he's willing for us to be restored and for him to pay the price of our restoration. You know what the price of our restoration is? Do you know what the cost is so that Jesus can build a, a, this entire structure across history and the nations, this structure of mercy, the cost of our restoration? He bears it all himself, and it's his own desolation. It's his own separation. It's his own estrangement. It's his weakness, giving up, laying aside his strength, laying aside all of his achievements and all of his merit willingly to be identified with all of our inability and all of our offenses against God. He is willing to enter all of our offense against God to bear the brunt and burden of it himself so that we, and to even in the end, scream from the cross the song, the lament, really, of desolation so that you and I, for all eternity, can sing and shout to the rafters the song of our restoration. Choosing weak people brings glory to Jesus. Now let's think just very briefly about two, and I hope you believe me when I said briefly. I don't want to disappoint you. Two pastoral reflections about the genius of Jesus' design. Because I think there are basically two groups of people in in the sanctuary this morning. And for one group, the, the... the discovery that Jesus has designated Peter the man as the rock is humbling 
It's very, it should be humbling, and for the other group, it's very hope-giving. Group one is a group of people who believe deep down that their lives are defined by their own good decisions. You know, you can be a Christian and think that. You can certainly be a Christian and live that way. But the fact that Jesus chooses Peter and people like Peter for his church means, as I've said already about 73 times, but it bears repeating, means that the church, Jesus is not building his, with the church, Jesus is not building a monument to the merit or the achievements or the ability of men. He's building his church in a way that leaves no room for the spiritual pride of men. Peter is the guy who loves Jesus and is naive about the power of sin and is naive about his own vulnerability to it. He's the one whose confidence in his own strength will uh, veer into the territory of spiritual pride. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. And some of us are saying right now or have said at some point in the past, not me, never. Not that sin, never. Friends, until you get to the point where you realize that there is no sin, and I'm talking to believers now, I'm talking about Christians now, until you get to the point where you admit and realize that there is no sin that you are not capable of committing, I don't think you've gotten to the bottom of how, how deep your need for a Savior really is. The church is a single-story building, Jesus' glory, not our own, and the most defining and decisive decision the gospel means that the most def- decisive and defining decision of your life was not made by you, but for you, by Jesus Christ. That's group one. You should be humbled by Peter's selection. But then there's group two. And I think that group two is probably a bigger group in this sanctuary. The very same selection of Peter that takes away our pride also gives us hope. And let me tell you what I mean. Because this other group it believes, if the first group believed that their life was dis- defined by their own good decisions, there are, there's another group of people in this sanctuary uh, who believe that their lives are really defined by their bad decisions, by the misturns. And, and when I say bad decisions, I mean as bad as you, as you can imagine. And some of you think that your destiny is determined by your decisions your bad decisions. And I want to say to you, just as I, I want to say to the first group, both of those views are unbelief. Both of, those, both of those errors call for your repentance. The first group is a hard group that needs to be called away in repentance. And it's spiritually proud. But you know, the second group is just as spiritually proud, but in a way that manifests itself in in gloominess and hopelessness in defeat. But Jesus' selection of Peter means that you have no warrant for despair. You have no right to despair that your bad decisions define your destiny. I I have wonderful news for you. The church is a hospital for sinners. 
The church that Jesus is building is a home for sinners. The church that Jesus is building is a refuge for sinners. There's a sanctuary for sinners here. There's a haven for sinners here. And the good news is you're not just a material. With all your failures, both pre-conversion and post-conversion, take them all. Let's put them all on the table. Guess what? You look at it and you're inclined to think, I could never, I could never ever be part of anything that matters because my decisions, there's no going back. Friends, I don't want I want you to go back. I want you to go in. Jesus says, come in. Come into my record. Come into my achievements. Come into my ability and my willingness. Come in. You are not just something that I'll put up with. I won't just tolerate you as a building material. You are my ideal building material. Because the most decisive and defining decision of your life was not made by you, but is made by Jesus Christ for you. How could this be? How could the builder and the rock be such good news? Well, this is just par for the course for the God of the cross, whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, whose thoughts are as high above us as the heavens are above the earth and whose ways are as high above us as the heavens are above the earth. So don't go back. Come in. Let's pray. Please make yourself beautiful or display your beauty in us. That's the better for me to ask, Lord Jesus, paint the beauty of your mercy upon the canvas of every soul you've assembled here at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. And we pray in your name. Amen. Please stand as we now.